I see the Space Development Agency trying to make the transition in what they're doing with their tranches, trying to capture that magic that's quicker uh, and more innovative on the commercial side. And I think they're doing a good job of tapping into that. But it really is different. Atlas lives mostly in the new space environment, but we do have a subsidiary, for example, to deploy our capabilities towards the traditional government market space. This is DIV Innovators, the show that celebrates the brilliant minds behind the technology and innovations that keeps our country safe. Here's your host, Dave Graff, co-founder of Radical. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with John Williams, the CEO of Atlas Space Operations. Atlas Space Operations is the leading provider of ground software as a service in the space communications industry. John, thanks for chatting with me today. Glad to be here, Dave. Fantastic. Well, to kick things off, you can see in the background, you know, that you spent some time in the military. So thank you for your 21 years of service as an officer in the Air Force. Thank you. Can you tell me a little about what you did in the Air Force, just to give a level set folks on where you're coming from? Um, I don't think you hear this term very often anymore, but I'm a Mustang. So four years enlisted, 17 as an officer. I finished most of my career as a professional space officer, commanded the Air Force Satellite Control Network in my last role, but got to do an awful lot of uh, special things. Spent a long time working with Tom Warman, you know, one of the fathers of Air Force Space, both on active duty and then later for him at Booz Allen. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, what a unique time, I imagine, as well, you know, as space was really becoming something of its own domain, if you will, or own service. Absolutely. Uh, I remember living through the first space war as a young captain in Desert Storm and watching everything going on there. And then afterwards, leading what became the uh, space-based infrared system for Space Command and briefing out all our Desert Storms lessons learned to all the folks who were now paying attention to us that we were real. Yeah. What a transition. Well, early on at Nuke only to now, you know, everything is tied into space and his current combat operations just continue to become every day, just part of our life, having space, which a lot of folks don't really understand how much that integrates. Right. Or how hard it is with a day without space. Right. <laughs> well, I think it's pretty awesome. You know, it may have changed over time, but as I look at, you know, the current officers that I've served with that are transitioning out, it's not that common for folks like yourself to rise up in the civilian side, commercial sector, to become a CEO of a company like Atlas Space. Can you tell me you know, some of the experiences you had in the Air Force or things that opportunities that may have existed that allowed you to rise to this position? Well, I, th I think as it is for you, we learned in the Air Force to be leaders. I was the only, you had to talk about how unique it was to be in space. I think I'm the only space officer to ever be the aide to the Air Force chief. My chief was Mike Ryan in his first year as chief in 97 and 98. And he gave me the best piece of the leadership advice I've ever gotten over the years, which is the number one rule of leadership is to succeed through your people. So in the last 25 years and the different roles I've had, I've continued to apply that rule. I think I got out at a young enough time, Dave, in my career that I still had runway to grow in the commercial world into, into leadership roles. Uh, this is my second stand as a, a CEO, third time leading a global business. And I think my time in the Air Force really set me up for that. My time as a commander of the Air Force Satellite Control Network uh, gave me the mission area background for these three global roles that I've that I've had. Yeah, yeah and I think that that is true. You know, 
leading through your people and, you know, people are going to help you succeed. That's right. You can't do it yourself. And they're the secret to the success. They are. There are a lot of ways to do it, but that one seems to uh, provide a lot of traction. Right. Well, as you left the Air Force, you had some couple other stints at uh, Booz and ATK and Universal Space, Biosat. Can you talk through a little bit what you did through those uh, different avenues as you reached your current capacities? So I think there's a common theme through those roles of we were pushing change in the dip, pushing change in the marketplace. At Booz Allen, I led a team that was doing defense industrial-based studies for the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Industrial Policy. We were helping them identify key technologies that we, the U.S., needed to invest in across the dip over the next 20 years to retain our technology leadership. At the same time, we were identifying technologies in the space domain where we were actually losing that leadership. And I think a lot of that has come to fruition here in the last decade or so, particularly with the Chinese. So that put me on a path with the DIB to be both a consultant and, and kind of a strategist perspective. My stint at ATK was where I would say I really learned business development, overseeing business development for three business units. I got to learn from a master in business development who was our general manager at the time. And then my last three roles, they've all been this global network kind of role, going to be the CEO of USN. Uh, USN went away as our Swedish owners decided to do away with all their daughter companies and bring the magic that we had created at USN into the mother company. Vice had asked me to come on board and build a brand new business there, doing the same thing, which I did. And then I had the opportunity earlier this year to take over this essentially startup company that's you know far along in its startup work between Series B and Series C, and take this company over the goal line into profitability through Series C and then whatever the future is after that. That's great. Yeah. How do you like the startup versus these larger, you know, behemoths that you work for? So it's different. Every single culture in each of those companies is different. The cool thing at both the places I was the CEO is I got to put the stamp of a collaborative culture to reinforce that innovation in those cultures. I've been working on that hard here. It was already here, so I didn't have as, as much of a vector change to do here, but it's different. This time, for the first time, I have to talk to investors. I had to learn all of the really deep financial investment side of the business that goes into that kind of thing. So it's one thing to know how to learn, know how to run a business and run out of business successfully. It's a whole nother that you have to combine the entrepreneurial and investment piece with that all at the same time. So I'm having a blast doing that. Yes, yeah, how many hats do you find yourself wearing? <laughs> a lot <of> count. <laughs> yeah, a lot of different. How big are you guys now? We're 38 folks, about half here in Traverse City, Michigan, and about half distributed around the United States. We have 50 antennas that we front for as a network of 12 of which we own. But I'll kind of save some of that for a later question about what we do that's special with our software and stuff. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. What is the key culture element you think within you know the companies you've been with and what you're trying to establish at Atlas? I'm not sure there's one. Let me talk a little bit about what you find. We in mankind have lots of brilliant ideas. The trick for the entrepreneur is take that and converting that into something that has a market acceptance in a business case and turn that into a real business. Lots of people that can do the front end part, some people that can do the middle part, and some people that can do the right hand part, you know, of converting it into a real business. I've always been over on the right hand side. Now I'm learning the left hand side. So I think what you have to have 
is ideas that you can convert into a business. You need the innovation of the folks. For us, that's very much software people. You need the, the folks that can actually translate that vision into a product or service that you can sell. And you need the culture that allows that innovation to sustain itself while you convert it into a real business where you have business metrics. You've got to answer to the board of directors and to your investors on how you're doing. Are you giving them an ROI yet? So I'll wrap all that together with, you have to have a collaborative culture to do that, that fosters that innovation, allows all ideas to compete on their own merit. For example, is one of my rules. Check your ego at, a, at the door is another rule, because if you don't do that, then you're after your idea, not somebody else's idea, you know, evaluating it objectively. So that culture of collaboration and culture of entrepreneurship and innovation, I think is, those are the keys. Well, that's fantastic. I couldn't agree more. Great lessons to move forward with. Right. Well, you also spent time with the NDIA as the space chairman. How was that experience? Because it's a pretty important, I think, industry association, you know, that's out there, you know, trying to support dibs and small businesses. How was that experience? I think the experience was great. I would encourage people to get involved in the industry associations. You know, all of that's pro bono work. It's in addition to your time. Hopefully your company, you know, supports you in doing that. We started or I started my engagement in that division through some work we did on STEM to help the National Defense Education Act of 2005 get drafted was initial work I did with that. I liked what the association was doing. I liked what that division was doing. So I participated. I got drugged into a variety of leadership roles over time. So as I got more and more serious with the leadership roles, I put my own stamp kind of on it. So over half of the folks that are now in the same role as chairman of the division since I left are folks somehow or another, I helped put them in those roles. So the vision would be contained. One of the key things about NDIA, as opposed to some of the other associations, is they're focused on making sure we have a classified capable workforce, that people that can get security clearance. The STEM was part of that, but that's one of their focuses that, that I would say is important to them. Yeah. And that's a tough one to keep going. <laughs> it is a tough one to keep going. It's such a long lead turn to get all these, you know. Well, it is. And from a STEM environment, you know, you've got to attract them in elementary school, essentially, to turn that engineer into, you know, studying engineering in college. And as much of our culture has changed and the self-gratification, it's really hard. Those kids are out there, but it's really hard to get them through the pipeline. So we have that workforce that can hold security clearances and solve our tough problems for us. So in the, uh, you know, you've got the defense industrial base and you've got, which oftentimes has to be dual use to be viable in today's world because government contracts come and go. You've got the mm -hmm. space enterprise, which is you know very unique in that you have commercial folks in space, but you also have the government is big time in space. How do you find that intersection like goes together? Do you have very much just commercial folks on one side and space or government on the other, or is it very mixed? I would say that there's probably silos with some crossover from the silos. There's very much a, a civil market, for example, with NASA and NOAA and uh, commercial companies who support them. But so there's old space and new space too, Dave. Old space, a lot of the old large primes, the government. And so they have traditional processes, traditional business models, the FAR. How do we buy satellites? And it takes seven years to design one. And then there's the new space environment where the business models are different. The timelines are different. Satellite can be built in 12 to 36 months, not as big a hang up on requirements. 
uh, services are much more prevalent. So while there are in the old space domain, government folks and their traditional supplier base, over in the new space domain, there's not so many folks. I see the space development agency trying to make the transition in what they're doing with their tranches, trying to capture that magic that's quicker uh, and more innovative on the commercial side. And I think they're doing a good job of tapping into that, but it really is different. Atlas lives mostly in the new space environment, but we do have a subsidiary, for example, to deploy our capabilities towards the traditional government market space. So what you said about two sides, even we as a new space commercial company, you know, are bifurcated a little bit to try to deal with both worlds. So you would say Atlas is dealing with mostly the civil side, not as much government contract? Commercial side. Commercial side. I differentiate between defense, intel, civil, which is NASA, NOAA, and pure commercial. But you do have work with the defense industrial, or as as part of the defense industrial bit with the government. We do. We just got our first classified contract, as a matter of fact. Oh, great. Yeah. Why don't you tell me all about it? (laughs) Uh, No, I think I better not. (laughs) But we're happy to have gotten it. Yeah, Yeah. that's fantastic. Congratulations. What excites you about, or what do you like or enjoy about working with the government and the defense industrial base? I would say that the space marketplace is evolving. As we watch what Space Force is doing, and this is something I've been a voice for change on for years now, they've struggled with what's inherently military and what's core versus what they can buy as a service. And that struggle, frankly, has gone on since Desert Storm. But in the last 10 years, has really, really changed quite a bit with the advent of Space Force, with them having some of their own acquisition authorities and them standing up things like uh, spec OTA to capture the OTA market, to help bridge the gap between companies and traditional acquisition in LA with Space Systems Command. I see a lot of change there. I'd also tell you that the Chinese threat's probably a forcing function right now for the embracing of commercial spit. So I think what I'm seeing is a lot of change. What I'm also seeing, I think, is a government who's still challenged in understanding the commercial business model. You know, they're out building their version of the Civil Reserve Air Fleet of the craft. It's called CASR in the space business. And understanding what civil, I mean, what commercial companies will or would not do in a CASR environment, I think is going to be an, an interesting, evolving conversation. So as the space community comes into its own in the defense business, as its own service, I think it's an exciting time to be part of it, to see how they adapt to what's the innovation that's out there in commercial. Can they adapt from their old acquisition model that takes so long to put a satellite on orbit and it's three or four generations behind in a computer chip once it's on orbit? It's just going to be an interesting journey and continue to get to play. And that's exciting for me. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I know uh, General Salzman pretty well from previous Air Force time, but good. seems like the right guy. I mean, they're pushing the right buttons, it seems, to change, right. you know, to bring acquisition and requirements and operators all together, you know, it just breaking the paradigms that have been set up in our, I'd say, Air Force, as we've known it, and other services. Right. And I would echo, I don't know General Salzman. Personally, he was kind of in a generation behind me. I was encouraged that he set their commercial strategy back to the team to go back and try again, that it wasn't where they needed to be. That, to me, showed some great leadership. I do know General Stephen Whiting, who's going to take over Space Command, uh, U.S. Space Command. He was my DO when I was a satellite control network. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. 
So I think Stephen's the last of the senior officers that I knew from my time on active duty. Yeah, but they're great. They are great leaders. Our nation's in good hands. Well, let's talk. I'm curious if you think it's challenging to innovate within the defense industrial base and working in that. But I think you know to talk about innovation. I want to hear more about you know Atlas Space. What do you guys do? You know, we talk about satellite ground operations. What does that mean? And you know, where are you really changing how we think of space and how we're able to work in that arena? Good. I think this part will be really interesting for some of your folks. So. The ground software as a service is we have some software called the Freedom Platform. And the Freedom allows us to do some things that are not traditional in the managed network services part. It allows us to integrate antennas that we don't own, a network of networks kind of thing. It also provides an easy button for customers to onboard. We use machine learning to help trend things. It's just really different than what's traditionally been offered. Now, our core service is we have antennas around the world that allow satellite operators to talk to their spacecraft, to command and control their spacecraft. And we're not in the satellite communications part, we're in the part of the marketplace that's all the non-satcom. So earth observation, remote sensing, debris removal, habitat, all those new space mission areas that are up there. So we help those customers, they're essentially creating content on orbit, whereas the satellite communications folks are taking content created on on the earth, going up to space and moving that somewhere else on the ground. We're taking the content that's created on orbit, bringing it to the ground so that data can be converted into information that's useful to us. So to give you an illustrative example of how far we've moved in the commercial world. So 20 years ago, this business, when you would touch a satellite, had a person in the loop at the antenna, a person in the loop at the network operations center, and a person in the loop at a satellite operations center. 10 years ago at Universal Space Network, we'd essentially automated enough to take the person at the antenna away, and now the person was on the loop, just observing what was going on, but the person was still involved. Now where we are today with our Freedom Software and what we do as a modern network is we're lights out. We don't have an operations center. Everything's computer to computer. There is no person in or on the loop. All the scheduling's done machine to machine. As the pass comes up, the computer tracks it, makes sure you know that we're doing the right thing, the data's sent to the right, say Amazon S3 bucket or wherever the data needs to go, and then it shuts it down. So it's, it's a much different operating concept. It allows us to be lean when I talked about 38 people. The satellite, a similar operation with satellite control network, I needed hundreds of people for all those people in the loop sitting at an antenna, sitting at the, in the op centers and stuff. So dramatic difference in what we're able to do in the commercial. So earlier this year, I talked to some of the colonels in Space Force about where they're trying to evolve. What we're doing is where they aspire to be in that lights out kind of configuration. And so I think we're going to see some, some efforts by them to get there. And maybe we'll be able to help them with our freedom software. That's awesome. So what is the, I mean, help me understand, because I'm not exactly proficient in this <laughs> domain, but the difference between, you said, where some folks were taking information off of Earth and going to satellites with more directive, right. is that just the comm system and the networks and the software are not postured so that they can receive information and send back? It's really just no. like a one-way stream? or No, there really are different marketplaces in the space business. So there's a very robust satellite communications market, or SATCOM, as we call it, the military, where there is content somewhere that on the earth that needs to move somewhere else, whether that's a picture 
from the intelligence community that needs to move to a warfighter in theater, that content's on the ground. Now, but that content originally got created by an imaging spacecraft. So the, the satellites and the antennas supporting moving the content from the NRO to CENTAF is different infrastructure and stuff than what we do to bring the image down from a spacecraft. So the frequencies are different. The operating models are different. The abilities of the antennas are different, both in data rates, frequencies, limited motion versus full motion. So really it's different marketplaces. And I always include that explanation because I don't want people to get in the mind, well, geez, you know, this is what Intelsat does. This is what O3B does. This is what, you know, other folks does. Bisat, you know, it's primary business that I just came from. This is aimed at earth observation, you know, bringing pictures to the ground, whether those be radar or optical, all those kinds of things, and then turning those into information that people could see. So it's, it is different. Is it full motion video as well? You can do any type of information. Well, that depends on the spacecraft, the data link, not unlike, you know, your fighter, yep. the data link to do that. So it, it all drives into the capabilities of the antennas and the spacecraft itself to do that. We are moving to a world, I call it, they're moving to generation three and four spacecraft along a, a line. We're moving to a world with generation three or four spacecraft where they're collecting more data, which could in future include video. And they got to move that to the ground. And we we stopped talking about megabits to the ground or even gigabits to the ground. Now we're starting to talk terabits to the ground. And so everything has to change to adapt to that. So That's you, where the innovation becomes really important. Yeah, absolutely. Do you take, and just to, to help me understand, are they then the satellite operator or the satellite company's operators, are right. they taking your software and using it on their satellites or they're, no. they're transmitting to a network of antennas that you've now been able to collect that and... Yes. Okay. So we run a network of antennas with our software. Our software makes the customer experience much simpler for them. But everything that happens with the spacecraft is up to them. We just enable that. So that picture that comes down, they tell us over what antenna at what time they want to download that. That's what happens. It goes to where they want it. You know, often these days it's in the cloud somewhere to be processed. And a simple explanation is we're the bent pipe communications pipe two ways for them to talk to that spacecraft and get data from that spacecraft well so back to our innovation question do you find it's easier to innovate in this commercial space versus the civil or government uh, side of it absolutely i'll give credit to you know we've had our fair share of cyber, small business innovative research efforts and to defense you know, innovation university uh, that they're bridging some of the gap we're just finishing a cyber with DIU called hybrid space architecture to take a government antenna, a civil antenna, and a commercial antenna and show the government they could schedule on all three of them contacts. But to answer your core question, despite that caveat of the front of there's some efforts on the government side to try to create innovation, it's much better for us to innovate on the commercial side. We can move quicker, we can learn quicker, we can fail forward, and then take that in a more mature form and offer it then into the div into the government space and that's what we're doing with our subsidiary freedom space technologies and taking a particular freedom software and now offering it into the government market space for their use and so what are the biggest innovation strides that you're looking at uh, atlas space right now so for us it's probably multifold but we pay a lot of attention to cybersecurity, and as we do more and more government business we've got to be protected at the same level you know as our customer so cyber protection is a biggie there. Can we move forward more on the machine learning? 
aspect to what does that hold for us? My CTO sure is excited about it and thinks it will lead to some things. We've collected, for example, in our seven years, billions of data points mm -hmm. on all the contacts that we've done for customers and learn from that. And I guess for us, we need to invest in some assets on the antenna side that more match us to that evolving world, you know, of maybe moving terabytes that I was describing to you a few minutes ago. So I think for us, that's the innovation. So we're going to have to, we need to innovate on the software side and we need to up our game on the hardware side. Yeah. So I noticed in your, you know, on some of the website talking about the deep space communication and right. network. What is that about? Well, that ties into that part about up in our hardware. I would describe it as if you look in the new space marketplace, you've got both the government and commercial folks, whether that's Bezos or Musk, want to go to the moon and want to go to Mars. But we're now we're going to Cisloader. We're putting lots of things out at geostationary. So there are the commercial world's just blossoming and doing things now at higher and higher altitudes, farther and farther out orbits. So that deep space connectivity is all about supporting things out to the moon over time as the marketplace takes off. And there's not a lot of commercial providers out there today that can do lunar support. There's like three of us poking at it a little bit, but that's what that's about. Obviously, we want to support things out to geo and cislunar too. So having larger assets, which is what I was talking about up in our hardware game a few minutes ago, really is needed to move large data volumes at those distances. And what spectrums are you guys working in for, you know, your antennas receiving? So most of the command and control stuff occurs in S-band. Most of the data that comes down these days from the in the commercial world is X-band. And then KA is split into a number of bands. There's an Earth, Earth observation KA band. That's a brand new market in our space that's just getting some of its first users or the first movers on the antenna side. Is optical playing at all? I've heard optical being thrown Great around. Question. Great question, Dave. Optical comes with its challenges in that you need a pretty much a cloud-free line of sight. But there are some places on Earth that optical can be used. And so I think it will be used. A recent Euroconsult report doesn't think it's going to be more than 10% of this market space by 2030. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is the atmospherics I talked about. You need a cloud-free line of sight. But the other is, if you're a satellite owner, when you're building your next generation of spacecraft, they have to go through this design challenge of size, weight, and power or swap. So if you're going to have to have a radio and an antenna in S-band, to make sure you can command and control that vehicle if there's an anomaly, then their challenge is flying an RF payload and flying an optical payload. Now they could take a risk and live just on the optical payload. I don't, I don't think there's anybody ready to do that yet. So the challenge for the, I think, on the optical side is adoption a bit because they're going to cost the customer or the satellite owner some size, weight, and power to fly that optical payload. But that optical payload does move more data than X and KA. So there will be some folks that adopt that. We're playing around the edges of that. We've talked to some of the optical providers. As the market becomes more clear that we may deploy some optical assets at a few of our ground stations where the atmospherics work for it. Is there any, uh, just thinking about putting computing power on the leading edge, if you will, you know, desire or interest to take your you know, software, your platform, and move it into like the Leo or something out initially that then can receive and then right. maybe 
to do another transformation back to the earth. I'm not sure it's so much our software as it is some of the processing and pre-processing software for that content generated on orbit. As we move into the more of the Gen 3, Gen 4 kind of spacecraft, I think what we're seeing is more and more of that processing capability on orbit for them to make the data stream that they've got to ship down smaller is one need for that. One of the other things that's been debated for the last couple of years but not implemented yet is a push to put edge devices, edge computing devices at the antenna level. So just as we're talking about pre-processing on orbit, there could be pre-processing at the antenna. So before the data stream is shipped from the antenna to somewhere in the cloud, that's still probably going over a fiber optic somewhere, that that pipe can be shaped too. A lot of discussions on that with the cloud providers because it would be their edge devices, but we haven't implemented anything like that. Neither have our competitors at, at this point, but I think they're all talking about it. AWS did a trade-off, I think, in, in them fielding their network. They short-circuited that by putting their antennas on top of their data centers in 12 locations around the world. It just turns out that the challenge is those 12 locations aren't necessarily the best geography for the satellite operator. It's concept of operations that when they want to downlink, uh, nor are they, uh, some of them are in not licensing-friendly countries either to license the downlink or the uplink. So there's always compromises in this business that you're trying to the trade off, at least. Uh, I'm kind of long in the tooth in this, so I think I've crossed most of those bridges so that we can make better decisions here on some of that. Ah, that's so fascinating. That's fantastic. Yeah. You mentioned cybersecurity, I agree, but for a company like yours, you know, that's not necessarily your domain expertise, even right. though you're, you're wise at. How do you handle cybersecurity? Do you outsource? Are you trying to insource the capabilities for protecting your you know, I'd say you're very important IP, so that doesn't get in the hands of the wrong folks. You don't get stuck in some sort of ransom situation. Right. It's a little of both of in-source and outsource. I got a really talented small software team that really paid attention to this. We're housed in Amazon in their cloud with most of our stuff. So we leverage Amazon's security skills to do that. So that's kind of the outsourcing part of it. The other part I would tell you is I'm probably hyper aware about the need to pay attention to that. One Friday night as I'm going home, I got a phone call at Universal Space Network years ago that one of my operators had clicked on ransomware. And so for the next half hour, I was driving home worried about that I was about to lose the network that night. It turned out that we had been working cyber defense for about a year before that, putting different tools in place. And so my team there jumped through hoops got the ransomware corralled with no impact, and we moved on and continued to work on up in our cyber game. Obviously, first night of the Ukraine war, Viasat's modems in the Ukraine got attacked. So as a Viasat employee, you know, at the time that happened, you know, we were all pretty hypersensitive about that event too. So I'm very sensitive to, this is real. And I had a little bit of cyber warrior experience when I wore a blue uniform too. So this stuff's real. So you've got to pay attention to it. So I have a good team, but we're also tapping into the experts in Amazon to make sure we're as good as we can get. That's great. That is, yes, super important. Do you see much difference or comparison as space is building out, you know, cyber is starting to build out? They're both domains, but they cross collaborate with the other domains so much that it's not really like air <laughs> right. or it's not ground. How do you think of those two comparatively in the domain discussion and what and how you 
how the government handles it and the different industries, you know, from organizationally. Wow, I'm having J-Rock deja vu days. About <laughs> <laughs> the debates we had in the late 90s about the same oh, yeah. side. I think they're both domains in their own rights. That's why we have Space Force these days, and we've got a cyber command. But as you said, things are so intertwined. Uh, ground's not ground anymore. Air's not air anymore by itself. Neither is, you know, at sea. Everything's so interrelated. Everything could get attacked from almost every other domain. And that has to be protected. And there needs to be a, you know, an integrated vision to that. So I don't think you can separate them. They each have their unique features and aspects of their domains that are different, but whether it's cyber or space versus air. What happens when you have Delta V in the air versus Delta V in space, they, different things happen. So Delta velocity, you know, you're going to add energy. You're going to push on the throttle. Different things happen in those two different domains. So they deserve their own attention because of those things are different. Development their own tactics, techniques, and procedures, but everything's intertwined. So you have to have smart, capable folks that can merge those, both on the commercial side, in the DIB, and, and for, or in a uniform. Yeah. yeah so it's definitely an interesting topic, but I think they are all are, all are starting to uh, less like you discussed. Right. The first, the most interesting part, I think, that's scary is the next major war is going to happen in space and cyber long before you see anything terrestrial. Yes. In some respect, I hope so. In others, that's terrifying. <laughs> I'm in both those camps, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to see nukes taking folks out, even though there is a space component to that. But yeah, the infrastructure yeah. and the reliance on space, you know, infrastructure with cyber and reliance on space would be devastating. Well, good. So if you had advice for, let's say, a you know, mid-career to finish up career military officer or looking to make a transition to uh, the commercial sector in the DIB, what advice would you give to them? That's a great question. It's not an easy answer. Let me approach it this way. Your military career is helpful for you in giving you work ethic, leadership skills, confidence in who you are. What it doesn't prepare you for is a commercial world where there's fewer rules, where there's fewer processes, there's matrix organizations, things aren't as clear, and a marketplace that's moving quickly. So I encourage folks to get smarter on what's going on in the commercial world, to find mentors, or read books, or whatever, watch podcasts that talks about how it's different. I try paying it forward for all the people invested in me by mentoring folks as they're coming out and mentoring over the years, mentoring folks coming out, mentoring folks in the companies and things like that. They're struggling with the transition. It's a hard transition. It's even harder the more senior you are, more set into the process discipline and the and the rigor and the organizational structure and stuff. Then is there some big companies in the div have that, but still there's so much to learn. What's a profit and loss? What's on the balance sheet? Uh, how does the money work? How do you do certain things that aren't the same as how you do them in the military? So the more you can learn about that. There's a book about 10 years old now that talks about the modern marketplace and how we got here. It's called Bold. It's a big book, long book. talks about you know how iPhones were generated, all the different apps that came together into one device. Part of the thought process of what entrepreneurs are doing in the commercial market space. That's part of it. 
that maybe it's worth understanding. There's other business books out there that talk about leadership in the commercial world. Ian Altman, A-L-T-M-A-N, is really good on business development, for example, for folks that are going to get out and get into business development on things. So I would say that they should accept that they have a good basis for moving into a new role, but it's going to be totally different. And the sooner you get up to speed on being able to succeed in the totally different, the better off they'll be. Yeah. Get in there and get experience quick. Right. Find a mentor. Well, that's great that you're doing that. And that is a tough challenge for a lot of folks. Yeah, it is. It's been for you know myself. It's yeah. it's just, it takes a while to figure it out. It is. And I was blessed in the in the roles I had with people paying it, you know, and investing in me to get me through those transitions. Absolutely. Well, we'll start to wrap it up. Last question I'll throw out is just, you know, where do you see Atlas Space operations in the next three to five years? What are, what are the great things you're going to bring to this country? So we're on a great growth path. We're actually on a 10x revenue path. We're having a record revenue year this year. And right now, the pipeline that we've built has been scrubbed really hard. Uh, and we're on a 10x path as we head into Series C in the spring. We're in a great place. So we're going to be cash flow positive next year, probably profitable for the first time next year. And then our series C is all about growth and all about going after that 10X. Our goal is to be the number one US provider of network services for the marketplace that we talked about. So that's where I see us. Uh, we may get really, uh, really big, really fast from where we are today. And we might get picked off by somebody too who wants to integrate us into their portfolio. That's as likely to happen as not in the next three to five years. So I can't tell you we're going to exist in five years, but if we do, that's what our goal is. Yeah. All great outcomes. Uh, you're obviously doing outcomes. something, doing right. something that makes a great difference Thank in you. a much needed capability. So. Right. I appreciate that. Well, good. Well, I think that's all the time we're going to have today. We'll wrap it up. But uh, if someone wants to learn more about Atlas Space or yourself, do you have a you know place to point them, your website or? Your website's atlasspace.com. And then there's a short bio for me there. And then I'm on LinkedIn if people want to connect. Okay. Uh, there's an Atlas page on LinkedIn too. Great. Well, again, thanks again, John, and uh, look forward to your success, your continued success, and let's keep in touch. Sounds great, Dave. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of DIB Innovators, brought to you by Radical. For the latest episodes, search DIB Innovators on your podcast platform of choice or visit us at Radical.com, R-A-D-I-C-L.com.